It's the early hours of February 7th, 1980. Although the worst of winter has passed, New York is still in the grip of a cold snap. Ice sparkles on the sidewalks as temperatures plummet to 20 degrees. Even the city that never sleeps has to slow down in these conditions. In Brooklyn, a few determined residents pick their way through slippery streets, but most folks have turned in for the night. Matching rows of red brick apartments line both sides of Sackett Street. The canopy of trees arching across the road frames the peaceful scene, but it's an illusion that's about to be shattered. At 695 Sackett Street, something doesn't quite look right. Instead of the pale glow that edges neighbors' windows, something is moving behind the drapes. Not the familiar shadow of a sleepy resident. Whatever this is, it doesn't move like a person would. This is something that has no business being there. Something that flickers, like it's sending out a Morse code warning of what's to come. Inside the ground floor apartment, 27-year-old Elizabeth Kinsey and her five children are fast asleep. There's nobody awake to witness the tragedy that's about to happen. The stillness of the night is rocked as an explosion from somewhere inside the townhouse tears through the early morning silence. Almost immediately, flames engulf 695 Sackett Street. The building is on fire and every second is precious for those inside. Sackett Street is a short hop away from not one, but two fire stations. Several crews mobilize when the call comes in. They arrive to find the building ablaze. It's so cold that the water from the hydrants is starting to freeze even as they try to control the fire. Very little will escape unscathed. Sadly, this will also include the residents, not all of whom will survive the inferno. But was it all just a tragic accident? Or could the fire have been started deliberately? If it's arson, who could possibly have enough of an ax to grind to risk the lives of those inside? Police think they have it all figured out within a matter of days. That is, until a deathbed confession, made over 30 years later, threatens to rip the case wide open again. If it's true, they could have had it wrong all these years and innocent people's lives have been ruined for nothing. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Hannah Quick, of the words she allegedly spoke as she lay dying, about a tragedy that wiped out a family of six. The fire that ripped through a Brooklyn apartment that a fire marshal says was started deliberately. Three men sentenced to 25 years in prison for a crime they swear they didn't commit. And the confession years later, that if true, might just expose a gross miscarriage of justice that has robbed these men of decades of freedom. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions.
it's still dark when the fire is brought under control. What remains of the building still smolders. The once bright red brickwork is smeared black with soot. At a ground level, anyone standing out on the sidewalk can now look into the hallway and right through the building. Once it's declared safe to enter, firemen pick their way through the ruins, looking for any signs of life, however unlikely that seems. They work their way upstairs, clearing room after room until their worst fears are realized. Up on the third floor, they find not one body, but six. Elizabeth Kinsey and her five children all perished in the blaze. Elizabeth had two boys, Troy, age nine, and Damon, aged 17 months, and three girls, Tamu, aged six, Kea, aged four, and the youngest, Nigene, aged only nine months. Detective Ralph Gorman of the New York Police Department arrives to take charge of the scene. He surveys what's left of 695 Sackett Street and shakes his head in disbelief at the carnage that has claimed an entire family. Any crimes involving children are tough to investigate, but this will be one of the most tragic of Detective Gorman's career. Officers at the scene direct Gorman to a fire marshal, who is sitting with the landlady of the building, Hannah Quick. Quick is already known to the police. She's currently facing charges herself after allegations that she uses the property to run what's known as a shooting gallery. It's a term police give to a location where heroin users go to get high. Despite her own ongoing brush with the law, she's the only eyewitness, so uniquely positioned to tell Gorman what just happened. When he asks her how the fire started, she tells him she saw the men she believes are responsible, faces she knows from around the neighborhood. She gives Gorman three names, Chino, Flacco, and Marty. The last of those names also comes with an address. The first 24 hours in any case are crucial. For the sake of the Kinsey family, Detective Gorman hopes to God this is the early break they'll need to get answers. Gorman heads straight over to Marty's house and knocks on the door. The man who opens it is in his early 30s, his wavy dark hair unkept as if he's fresh out of bed. Detective Gorman asks him outright if he's called Marty, and the man replies that he is. Gorman doesn't arrest him right away. Instead, he asks Marty to come with him, saying he needs to ask him some questions about an incident that has just occurred. Marty climbs into the back seat of Detective Gorman's car, and the pair head across to a spot on Fifth Avenue where he orders Marty to get out. Unbeknown to Marty, this is all staged. Nearby, a fire marshal sits in his parked car with Hannah Quick next to him in the passenger seat. Quick shuffles forward in her seat, peering across the street. She studies Marty's face for a few seconds, then turns to speak to the fire marshal. She tells him there is no doubt in her mind that this is one of the men she saw fleeing the building right before the explosion. The fire marshal waits until Gorman glances across, then signals that they have the right man. Gorman puts Marty back into his car and heads over to speak to Quick again in person. She reiterates that this is one of the three guys she saw leaving Sackett Street. Gorman asks Quick to meet him at the 78th Precinct Station where he'll take a formal statement. 
He takes Marty in with him, intending to question him further once he has more details from Quick. At around 4 a.m., Detective Gorman sits across from Quick in an interview room to take her formal statement. She tells Gorman that she's known the three men for around two years, and in the past nine months, she's seen them on an almost daily basis. She claims the three are heavy drug users, saying they would come into an apartment on the ground floor to inject heroin, sometimes as often as three or four times a day. Is it possible that one of the three men started the fire accidentally while they were high? Or was there a darker motive, one linked to a dispute with Quick herself, as the landlady who permitted this kind of activity under her roof? Detective Gorman thanks her for her time and lets her go back to the ruins of her apartment building to assess the damage. He heads into a neighboring interrogation room where Marty waits nervously. When Detective Gorman asks for his full name, he admits that Marty is just a nickname. His real name is Omri Villalobos, a 32-year-old Brooklyn resident. Gorman reads Villalobos' rights and is surprised when Villalobos waives his right to have an attorney present, even after the severity of the accusations is shared. Villalobos doesn't admit to being at Sackett Street in the early hours of this morning. He does, however, confirm to Gorman that he has been in the building as recently as a month ago. He also admits to knowing the other two men Hannah Quick named, Flacco and Chino, although denies any knowledge of the fire or what might have started it. Gorman isn't about to just take his word for that, though. He sets about locating the other two, and later that morning, he gets a call from Detective John Walker at the 68th Precinct. Both Flacco and Chino have been found and are being held for questioning. Flacco is actually 35-year-old Raymond Mora, and Chino's real name is William Vasquez, also 35. Detective Walker arranges for Hannah Quick to identify both men. Rather than the usual method of placing them in a lineup, she's shown only the two suspects and asked whether these are the men she saw. She nods and confirms that these are indeed the other two she saw leaving 695 Sackett Street with Villalobos. Detective Gorman arrives soon afterwards and interviews Mora first, followed by Vasquez. Both confirm the nicknames they are known as, but both deny playing any part in the fire. Vasquez, like Villalobos, waives his right to counsel. During questioning, he confirms that he was in the neighborhood when the fire started, although he says he has no knowledge of the fire or how it might have started. With the three suspects in custody, the state fire marshal sets about trying to piece together how the fire began. The main question he needs to answer is whether it was started deliberately or was merely a tragic accident. He spends hours picking through what remains of the townhouse, carefully noting the scale and scope of destruction. It's his job to decipher the carnage that fire has left behind. The marshal finds two separate locations on the ground floor where he believes it originated from. That's a troubling number. It's accepted logic that an accidental fire starts from a single point, such as a plug socket or kitchen appliance. Ones that are started on purpose tend to have multiple ignition points where some kind of accelerant has been used. After a lengthy inspection, there's no doubt in his mind, this 
was a deliberate act. The Kinsey family's deaths have just become homicides. While Detective Gorman would prefer to have at least one confession, he's confident enough to charge the three men on the basis of the fire marshal's findings plus Quick's eyewitness account. As far as motive is concerned, one theory is that the three men torched the building as a result of a dispute with Hannah Quick. Nothing that she or any of the men say corroborates this, though. All three continue to protest their innocence, but they're remanded in custody. The only way they'll regain their freedom is to convince a jury. The wheels of justice turn slowly, though, and it'll be another 18 months before the case actually goes to trial. In November 1981, Villalobos, Vasquez, and Mora all stand in the dock at the Kings County Supreme Court in Brooklyn. The trio hope that their defense teams will prove their innocence, that this case is one terrible misunderstanding, and that they're about to be reunited with their families. That's not how it plays out, though. Each defendant has their own lawyer, but only one of them makes an opening statement. This is a great opportunity to set the scene and lay the groundwork for the defense that's to follow. For some inexplicable reason, though, the sole statement made is literally a few sentences long. The wives of all three are in attendance. Mrs. Villalobos and Mrs. Mora both take the stand to testify that their husbands had, in fact, been home with them at the time the fire started. If they were at home, the defense argues, how can they have had anything to do with the fire? The prosecution has two compelling witnesses to make their case, though. The first is the fire marshal. He talks the jury through the crime scene. He shows them pictures of the low-lying burn marks on the baseboards, explaining why he believes the fire was started on the ground floor, where Quick claims the men exited from. Fire can't travel downward. Fire travels up, he says, detailing how the flames had reached upwards into the apartments above. Next, he draws their attention to the multiple points of origin. He reiterates the prosecution's contention that this means it was started deliberately. Finally, he points to the puddle-shaped marks on the floor tiles. He refers to them as poor patterns. These, plus the damage to baseboards, in his professional experience, show that an accelerant was used. The defense lawyers cross-examine the fire marshal but fail to question him on one glaring omission in the crime scene report. For all his talk of an accelerant, lab tests on debris from the scene found no trace of any, not a single drop. Next to take the stand is Hannah Quick. Eyewitness testimony always plays strongly with juries. Despite her own troubles with the law, her testimony against Vasquez, Mora, and Villalobos is damning. Quick tells the jury she was awakened in the early hours by the sound of men whispering in Spanish. When she got out of bed to investigate, she says she saw Vasquez, Villalobos, and Mora outside her door, talking in low voices. Minutes later, through her bedroom window, she claims she watched them leave the building. Soon after that, Quick said that she heard an explosion and ran from the building as it burst into flames. 
the defense team attack what they can. They try to have Quick's identification of their clients thrown out. The usual practice is to put suspects in a lineup and have a witness pick them out. Here, though, that was overlooked completely. Instead, one suspect had been ID'd out on Fifth Avenue, and the other two while in a room in the police station. Judge Nicholas Clemente denies this motion, though. He says that because these were people Quick claims she knew well over a nine-month period, there is no question over whether she would have pointed them out in an ID parade. On November 24, 1981, the jury returns its verdict. All three men are found guilty of arson, as well as the deaths of the six members of the Kinsey family. Sentencing is scheduled for early in the new year. On January 14, 1982, Judge Lagana hands the trio identical punishments. 25 years to life. As they're led away to start their sentences, the sounds of their family sobbing fills the public gallery. Lieutenant John McCarthy, commanding officer for the 11th Precinct, is interviewed on local news that evening. We received very good cooperation from the community, he tells reporters, referring to Hannah Quick's first-hand account of the night of the fire. Villalobos, Vasquez, and Mora waste no time in appealing the verdict, but their pleas fall on deaf ears. Their attorneys try a variety of angles, all without success. It seems that they and their families have no choice but to accept this new reality. 25 years seems a lifetime away. For one of the three, the sentence might as well be life. Raymond Mora will never set foot outside prison as a free man. Eight years into his sentence, he dies of a heart attack, aged just 44. It's unclear whether he had any underlying condition or whether the stress of life in prison was a contributing factor. Either way, he had denied any wrongdoing until the day he died. His family vowed to carry on the fight in his place. Mora isn't the only one whose health takes a turn for the worse behind bars. William Vasquez loses his eyesight in prison as a result of untreated glaucoma. The world moves on as the remaining two serve out their sentences. They're behind bars for some of the most momentous events in modern history, from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the attack on the World Trade Center. One thing never changes, though, their unwavering assertion that they are innocent. Villalobos and Vasquez never give up in the years that follow. In 2011, Villalobos and his legal team make a request under the Freedom of Information Act to the New York City Fire Department. The fire department respond on March 3rd of that year, saying they'll send him copies of everything connected with the Sackett Street fire that they still hold. Villalobos waits patiently, but nothing arrives, so he applies to the Kings County Supreme Court to compel them. And on January 20th, 2012, the court does just that. When the documents finally arrive, though, large chunks of them are redacted. In particular, sections that refer to witness testimony, leaving Villalobos guessing as to what was said about him to police back in 1980. 
The fire department and NYPD claim that to share the unredacted versions could endanger surviving witnesses. On top of that, they argue that revealing this kind of information in a public way may put off future witnesses from giving statements if they know their anonymity isn't guaranteed. The argument is still ongoing in 2012 when the pair become eligible for parole. When the board meets, the vote goes in their favor. 32 years after their arrest, Amory Villalobos and William Vasquez walk out of prison free men, although still guilty in the eyes of the law. Freedom on these terms doesn't sit well with either of them. Later that year, Villalobos reaches out to the New York Law School. He speaks with Adele Bernhard, a law professor and director of the Post-Conviction Innocence Clinic. She and her students agree to review the case. Something about the case stands out for Bernard. It has a similar feel to a number of other convictions that had been successfully challenged in Brooklyn. A single eyewitness with a motive to lie. Meanwhile, Villalobos and Vasquez continue their fight in the Supreme Court to get access to the full range of evidence related to their case. And in May 2013, Judge Larry Martin sides with the pair, ordering that the complete and uncensored version of the documents should be shared. What this gives them, amongst other things, is a full, unedited account of the fire marshal's findings. Not just the conclusions he reached, but also what he saw and how he interpreted the scene. It might only be a small win in the grand scheme of things, but for men used to feeling like the system is against them, it's a huge confidence boost. For the first time in years, it feels like they might be getting somewhere. If they can discredit the fire marshal's original version of events in any way, it'll be a massive step to proving their innocence. Adele Bernhard enlists the help of John J. Lentini, an internationally renowned fire expert who has conducted more than 2,000 fire investigations and appeared as an expert witness in over 200 cases. Bernhard asks him to look at material including building plans, what remained of the fire department's interview notes and trial testimony, as well as laboratory, police, and fire reports. Lentini spots flaws in the original investigation almost immediately. He points out that just four years after the Sackett Street fire, the National Fire Protection Association had put out a film that showed fire behaved very differently from the prevailing theories held back in 1980. He also tells Bernhard how by 1992, the association and experts identified a phenomenon known as flashovers. Fires that consumed entire rooms and that could leave behind evidence that looked like arson even when arson had not occurred. Flashovers happen when a fire gets so hot that the entire room catches fire and all available combustible materials like floors and baseboards ignite almost at once. After a flashover, a fire might continue to burn more intensely in certain areas depending on the amount of ventilation. This could make it look as though it originated from multiple locations. Lentini goes on to share that in 2000, the Department of Justice issued guidelines to fire investigators, warning how common mistakes in cases like this were. Lentini writes a comprehensive report in which he directly attacks each and every point of the fire marshal's evidence. Not only do baseboards burn in fires that evolve into flashovers, 
but he also debunks the suggestion the marshal made at the time that fire can only move up. Lentini writes that, Fires do, contrary to the marshal's testimony, move down, up, or wherever there is heat, fuel, and oxygen. This contradicts the assertion that the three men started it on the ground floor. Quick claims to have seen the men exit from there, but in actual fact, it could have began anywhere in the building. Lastly, the puddle pattern that the fire marshal stated was evidence of a liquid accelerant no longer holds true. Flashovers are known to create these very same marks. The significance of Lentini's findings is huge. Everything Villalobos and Vasquez have been saying all along is now supported by a world-renowned expert, a man endorsed by the FBI. Surely now someone in authority has to listen to what they have to say. In spring 2015, Villalobos and Vasquez get their chance to be heard. Bernhard and her students reach out to the district attorney for Kings County, Kenneth Thompson. They share everything they've uncovered with him, urging him to review the case in light of Lentini's findings. Thompson oversees a department called the Conviction Review Unit, or CRU for short. When the CRU investigates any hint of a wrongful conviction, they look at everything from scratch. This includes re-interviewing witnesses and re-examining evidence using the most up-to-date forensic techniques. The CRU is the largest team of its kind in the United States. In little over a year, they've been responsible for exonerating 14 wrongly convicted men. Now, Bernhard hopes that the Sackett Street fire case will take that tally up to 17. The head of the CRU, Mark Hale, makes locating Hannah Quick a priority. They want to go over her testimony again. Without her account, Villalobos, Vasquez, and Mora may never even have been suspects, let alone convicted. Sadly, when they do track her down, they're too late. Quick passed away in 2014. Fortunately, there's someone they can speak to in her place, her daughter who shares an incredible story with them. She tells investigators how, on her deathbed, her mother admitted to lying all those years ago. Quick told her that although she knew the three men, she hadn't seen them at all that night. She had lived with the guilt of sending three innocent men to prison ever since. While it's unclear why Quick decided to point the finger at Villalobos, Vasquez, and Mora, Quick's daughter reveals a reason why she may have stayed silent. Following the 1980 Sackett Street fire, Quick had received a handsome insurance payout. It was a fact that she outright denied at trial and now puts her entire testimony into question. This new information is huge, even if the deathbed confession is secondhand. But investigators don't stop there. They work their way through as many of Quick's remaining relatives as they can find. The surviving family they track down paint a far from glowing picture. According to them, Hannah Quick was a compulsive liar with a history of alcohol and drug abuse. Prior to the fire, they say she openly encouraged addicts to use a vacant first floor apartment at 695 Sackett Street to get high. 
there are also claims that she had somehow illegally reconnected the electricity to the building after it had been cut off. Could this have been the source of the blast that started the fire? Much of what the CRU uncover is circumstantial, but John Lentini's analysis of the fire adds weight to their findings. More importantly, it's aligned with the latest law enforcement thinking around fire damage. While all of this is being reviewed, all Villalobos and Vasquez can do is wait. It's almost as nerve-wracking for them as when they'd been at the mercy of a jury. But their wait is almost over. It's December 16th, 2015, a chilly Tuesday in Brooklyn. Villalobos and Vasquez arrive at Kings County Supreme Court, the very same building where they were stripped of their freedom 34 years ago. They're both a far cry from the young men who walked through the doors in 1981. Villalobos, now 66, makes his way carefully to his seat. He's guided by his family having lost his sight in prison, the tapping of his cane echoing in the stillness of the room. Vasquez, the older of the two at 70, takes his place beside his friend. Both men sit in nervous silence as the judge calls the court to order. The tension in the room is tangible, but it's a mercifully short hearing. Within minutes, they hear the words they've waited decades for. The judge announces that their convictions are overturned and that their records should be wiped clean. The two men rise as fast as their aging legs will allow to turn and hug one another for what seems like an eternity. Tears of relief follow for them and their loved ones. Alongside them is the family of Raymond Mora. His daughter, Eileen, is interviewed outside the court. There's no better Christmas gift that I could get than to say that my dad is innocent, and now everyone knows, she says, her voice thick with emotion. State attorney Kenneth Thompson gives an interview after the hearing, in which he confirms this was a prosecution that should never have been brought before a jury. Vasquez and Villalobos stroll out of the courthouse and into the pale December sunshine, press swarming around them like flies. Both men say that while they had lost their freedom for years, they never gave up hope. I'm not angry, says Vasquez. I know they did something bad to me, but God is on my side. Villalobos, too, is surprisingly accepting of what he and his friends had been subjected to. A reporter asks him if he'd considered the fact that in many states, he and his friends could have found themselves on death row. Yes, I did, he admits. I thought about everything, but I never lost my faith because I knew that I didn't commit a crime. Their attorneys don't just stop after securing exonerations, though. They set about filing compensation claims with both the city and the state of New York. It might seem an open and shut claim after the case against them has been exposed as flawed. In fact, it takes 20 months from this point to work through the complicated process of putting a value on what the three men have lost. In March 2017, their claims finally reach a conclusion. While no amount of money can replace what has been taken from the Mora family, they do eventually accept a settlement of around $1.4 million. Villalobos and Vasquez are awarded a much higher sum, 
a combined settlement from the city and state of just under $14.5 million each. Far more important than the cash to Villalobos and Vasquez is the fact that they can hold their heads high as they walk around their neighborhood as free, innocent men. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Peter de Blasio, America's top trial lawyer who deliberately lied to win a high-profile case. On a summer's evening in 1975, Samuel Bronfman was kidnapped by two strange men. As the son of one of the nation's richest businessmen, he was set to inherit a fortune worth millions of dollars. But although Samuel Bronfman was eventually found in a grotty Brooklyn apartment, his story had only just begun. His trial is a whirlwind of lavish lies and wild accusations, spun by the defending lawyer, Peter de Blasio. De Blasio dragged the Bronfman name through the mud and concealed the truth of the entire kidnap. But then, in 2020, 45 years after Samuel's abduction, and just months before his own death, Peter de Blasio finally revealed what really happened on that fateful night of August 8th, 1975. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Rob Scrag, supervising producer Jane O, sound designed by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 